2: Hi, I'm Zivi Owens. And you're listening to the Webby nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at zibbyowens Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make These amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. Hi, I'm really excited to announce that I'm starting a second podcast, which is going to be called...
1: Kids do have time to read books.
2: By Zippy Owens and family. Today. (laughs) Today. And my kids are going to help, right?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: They're excited. We're going to be interviewing. And I'm excited. And we're going to interview amazing children's book and authors and young adult authors with my older kids. And it's just going to be fantastic. Make sure not to miss it. I am so excited to be interviewing Evangeline Lilly. Evangeline is the author of the children's book series, The Squickerwonkers. The two titles in the series so far are The Pre-Show and Act 1, The Demise of Selma the Spoiled. She's also released audiobooks of The Demise of Lorna the Lazy and The Demise of Andy the Arrogant. A former model, Evangeline is best known for her acting career. She starred in the ABC hit drama Lost as Kate Austin and then starred in The Hobbit movies, Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and Avengers Endgame. Originally from Canada, she attended the University of British Columbia. She currently lives in Hawaii, which is so nice, with her two children. So thanks, Evangeline for coming on Moms that Don't Have Time to Read Books. And also, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books, our first hybrid both-recording guest. I'm so excited. I love
0: that I'm your first guest for your hybrid. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's very appropriate. It's appropriate because I'm a mom who never has time to read books, and I'm always reading books to my
2: kids. See? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Some days when I don't have time to read, I'm like, I've read 16 books, right? We go through a whole series. right. Of, how to catch a snowman, how da da da, da. and I'm like, <laughs> I've been reading for an hour and a half yes. and no credit for it. Yes, exactly. Well thank you for coming on. Let's talk about the Squicker Wonkers, which is your series, which is amazing. How did you come up with the idea for the Squicker Wonkers series? I was
0: 14 years old when I came up with The Squicker Wonkers' original poem, which is sort of loosely tied to the poem that is in the pre-show, but it's it's not in any way the same. It got rewritten a lot of times. But I was a very... I suppose, unusual for a teen-year-old. I wasn't—I didn't have much of a social life at all. And, you know, by choice, like, wasn't really that interested in what teenagers were doing at that point. I kind of had the perspective at 14 of, like, this is all bullshit. Am I allowed to say that on your podcast? You can say anything you want. Okay. And I spent my time, like, reading and journaling and writing, and I was really into Dr. Zeus. I think I had kind of come back to him as a teenager and realized— This dude was so smart, and he was lacing such incredible messages into these really simple tales that I loved because of the poetry, and I was really into poetry at that point. And I just thought it was cool that he had this irreverent use of language, and he would just make up whatever her word he wanted to, if he didn't have the perfect rhyming word, he would just make one up instead of searching for one in the English language. And I was like, I want to make up my own words. That's really cool. So I started writing a list of imaginary words, and most of them were ridiculous and not very good. But one of them on the list just felt good on my tongue and really stuck. And it was the word squicker wonker. But I, I, at the time, I, I was like, but what's a squicker? What is that? Like, what, is, what would that mean? What would that translate to? And as soon as I asked myself that question, this voice with this kind of Scottish lilt came into my head and it said, The name is Squickerwonker, perhaps unknown to you, but that's it, Wonker. And this is what squickerwonkers do. And then it went on to like tell this tale of these really kind of horrible family who did a lot of really naughty things and got away with it. And that became the original poem. And then like 20 or so years later when I finally decided it's time for me to stop making, writing things and then putting them in drawers and actually try to get them out into the world. The illustrator who I was courting at the time read a few of my manuscripts and he read the Squicker Wonkers and he said, oh my God, I have such a clear vision for what I want to do with this book. I want to put it in a wagon and I want it to be marionette puppets. And I was in love. I just thought this was amazing. I've always loved dark kids' books, and I love marionette puppets. How they have sort of a built-in sense of creepiness and mystery and magic. And that was sort of the beginning of what has now become a seven-year journey.
2: Wow! And to remember all that from when you were fourteen. I know it's weird because I don't remember
0: anything from childhood. <laughs> I don't remember anything from
2: yesterday, right? <laughs> but that's amazing. <laughs> that's called mummy brain. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. So we were talking earlier also about how you were kind of a reluctant reader and how these books are intended to benefit readers similar to that, like the way you used to be. Can you talk about how your own experience sort of informed the way you package these ones?
0: Yeah. Interestingly, the books have this kind of ambiguous age range because I intentionally tailored these books to me as a little girl. And I was a really poor reader. My comprehension was really high. I I understood everything I was reading. But I was so slow. I was so painfully slow that... I started to feel like there was something wrong with me or I was stupid because my friend could read a book in a week that would take me two months to get through the first quarter and, and I would just end up giving up. And so I started to really loathe books. The, the, the idea of reading in a books actually made me feel mad inside because I was ashamed and I was embarrassed about the fact that I was such a slow reader. And then my grandfather, who was an educator, he introduced me to this author, Edward Gorey. And Edward Gorey, if you don't aren't familiar with his stories, his books are very dark and they deal with highly sophisticated and mature subject matter, primarily with death, death and gore. But there's like five or six words on a page and they're very highly illustrated. And he was the first author that I felt wrote his book for me. And I felt like he was sort of winking at me and nudging me and saying, I know you're smart. I know that you don't need 700 words on a page to prove that you're smart, but you get my joke. You get that what I just talked about, even though it seems really macabre, is really funny. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that you can get that humor tells me you're smart. This is sort of this dialogue I was having with this author in my eight year old mind. And so I wrote these books tailored very much as kind of an ode to him and an ode to the little girl in me that wanted sophisticated subject matter, but didn't want to be overwhelmed by the word count. And then in a strange kind of wonderful twist of fate, what ended up happening because of that is they also are are kind of ideal books for young advanced readers who have really high comprehension, like a little four-year-old who's just really quite bright. And they're reading, I don't know, you know, the Toy Train book. And, and it's just not satisfying their intellectual needs, but they're still at a low word count. It's also really good for them. So it kind of ended up putting it in this very broad age range and, and hopefully appeals to a lot of kids.
2: And it's perfect for audiobooks which I listened to. You did. I mean, they're great. (laughs) Just like that little snippet you did before. Yeah. I do all these crazy voices and I just,
0: I get to put on my weird hat and, and not be a glamorous, you know, star for a minute and just be the kooky, weird mom that I really am and read the books the way I would read them to my kids. And I
2: have so much fun making the audiobooks. And you've released some of the books as audiobooks before print books, which I think is so interesting. How did you come to that decision? That was a long
0: road to get to that choice. I've had a really interesting journey with the Squicker Wonkers. I do have a full time day job, and and so this has been something I've been doing on the side, and and haven't you know found the road into the publishing world very easy. I've found it f- a very difficult and kind of complicated world to get into, and I'm sure for people within the world they're like I don't understand, it's so simple. But being an outsider, it feels very exclusive, and it and it feels very Sort of unknown and I, I really didn't know where to put my feet down. And so I tried publishing the Wonkers in a multiple, you know, different kinds of ways. I started by like self-publishing and I took it to, a, you know, a Comic-Con and it was really successful. But then I was like, I have no idea how to get into bookstores. Where do we even start for that? And so then I tried a different mode of publishing, but it was publishing with, you know, a, a graphic novel, primarily graphic novel publisher. And, you know, they weren't a children's book publisher, so they treated the material material in a way that wasn't appropriate for, you know, getting it to children and libraries and teachers and, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, what? Ugh, like this, this isn't a good fit. Like this isn't working. And then I ended up deciding, forget it. I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many kids read this book. As long as one kid is touched by this book, I'm just going to put them up on the little website and I'm just going to produce the audiobooks and I'm going to do it all as quickly as I possibly can to get the stories out to the world. I just want to tell my stories. I don't really care what the end result is. And the audiobooks, to me, I used to listen to audiobooks when I was a little girl. My grandparents were missionaries in Africa, and they brought us stories about Africa in audio form, and they just completely captivated my imagination. And what I would listen to them, if somebody told me a year after I'd listened to that audiobook 17 times, 100 times, 700 times, there's now a hard copy of that book and you can see the pictures, I would be dying for that book. And I started thinking like what a wonderful way to get the stories to children as quickly as possible so that they're engaged and they're interested and they don't have to wait for the illustrator to take a year to paint the incredible illustrations in the book, but can get the stories and succession, fall in love with the world and the characters, and then eventually get this bonus payoff of seeing them come to life in hard copy. And I'm just, I can do all that on my own. Like, I don't need, like you did, you know, like you did with this podcast. The beautiful thing about audiobooks is it's not really that difficult to make them. It's not, it doesn't require the industry that it does
2: to make a hard copy book. It's true. Plus, you just get this attachment to the characters, I feel like, differently when you hear them. Yeah. Versus, I don't know. Well, it's multimedia, and
0: kids nowadays, their attention spans are not necessarily exactly what they used to be. And they're used to being stimulated on all these sort of sensory fronts. And so I also just felt like, you know, especially for any... You know, children with special needs or with any kind of disability. What a wonderful thing to help bring the world to life, to hear the characters, to hear the sounds of the world and have a soundtrack that's really identifiable and and helps bring them immediately into the squicker world the minute they hear the sort of opening lines of the soundtrack.
2: Yeah. It's all about storytelling. Yeah. In whatever format, it's like getting them, getting the message out. So, the Squicker Wankers, so though, has this sort of, as you mentioned, this dark side, right? And it's a, all about each one is about the demise of a certain character. Yeah. How did you, which is really like the death of a character. Yeah, I mean, really, right, I mean, let's right. be honest. Sometimes. Sometime, okay, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes. So why so dark? Like what, I, mean, I know it appealed to you reading dark children's books yeah. and everything, but but why this why this way with all your characters?
0: There's so, many, some of them. there's so many reasons and motivations for me writing dark literature. And I'll try to be as brief as possible. I, I go on and on. But one of them is I looked around at what was available for my kids to read and, and what I was looking for in children's books. And I found there was a lot of the same thing. And those stories were generally stories of in in kind of a very safe world where things go pretty much the way you expect them to, with a little bit of maybe magic thrown in. And there's a struggle, and then through love and perseverance, the struggle ends, and everything ends happily ever after. And I I felt very strongly. That in this age of protective parenting, this protectionist mentality we have around our kids, that we're doing them such an enormous disservice. And I see these millennials that graduate from high school and or college and go out into the real world and are completely paralyzed with stress and anxiety and fear because they're facing a real world where things don't always turn out with happily ever after ending and they have no coping mechanisms because no one ever told them those stories that didn't end so well. And then they didn't have the chance to both process those and talk about them in a very safe place, in the nurturing place of a nursery or a reading room or a classroom or a library with adults who can guide them through what it means when things don't go our way or when things don't end nicely for us and how we can reflect and how we can learn from those experiences. And there was an old tradition that I really respect in telling stories to children that has lasted much, much longer than this modern era of happily ever after. You know, and a lot of people think of the Grimm's Brothers when when you say cautionary tales. But that used to be the bulk of the stories we told children to prepare them for life. It was a safe way for them to explore their own shortcomings, their own failures, and learn how to deal with them. And nowadays, we really don't tell cautionary tales so much to children anymore and I think they're really an important part of development and so I call the squicker wonkers cautionary tales for modern day brats (laughs) 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 who are so used to being told it's not your fault it's okay you didn't do anything wrong it's the teacher's fault it's your friend's fault it's mommy's fault but it's not your fault you're perfect actually you're not perfect and your actions have consequences and those consequences might lead to really bad places if you're not careful about making better choices and let's talk about that and let's talk about that because I have faults and I'm not perfect either mommy's not perfect daddy's not perfect we all make mistakes you have to have your own podcast by
2: the <laughs> way I can't remember if we were talking about this on here you were debating I was t- yeah I was yeah. I was talking, anyway. Like, yes. anyway you're like I could just sit here and listen to you all day basically
0: <laughs> I would do, I would do that with you we should do this all the time we just make it a
2: regular totally. I'm in New York. I come and we chat Great. (laughs) Please. So you've said before, obviously you're also an actress, but that writing is your true passion and that in part acting is a means to an end for you and that it enables you to do all these other things. So talk to me about that and also what it's like to be spending so much of your time doing maybe what isn't your greatest passion.
0: That's a, I mean, it's a really, it's a struggle for me as a mom. When I was working on Lost, it was the first job I'd ever gotten as an actress. And in a weird twist of fate, I kind of got the job by accident. And I found myself thrown into this occupation and found very quickly, realized that it was actually something that was really hard for me. And by hard for me, I mean on all levels, emotionally, professionally, mentally. I just, it wasn't a very healthy fit. The fame was very uncomfortable for me, and it it really put me into a dark place. And I had to really do a lot of soul searching about that. And at the time, you know, I, I was like, if I see this through, if I just see through this show, at the end of this, I can, I mean, I came from a family that has not you know had nothing and and I could help my parents and I could help my sisters and I could put myself into a financial place where the sky would be the limit. Like I could just think about what do I really want to do and I could pursue that and I could go after my passion. And so that became a really simple solution to this conundrum of like, wait, I'm unhappy in what I'm doing. What do I do? And I just stayed and I stuck it out. And I think it's a really important thing in life sometimes that we learn to do that just to stick out the, st- the tough stuff for the future benefits. But then now I've made much more of a peace with it. And that's a whole other story we'd have to do a whole other day because it's a long story. <laughs> but like I've, I've made my peace with acting and I've found ways in which to be happy within that space. But it still doesn't fulfill me the way I wish I could spend hours and hours and months and years working on something that fulfills me like how writing does. And now that I'm a mom, that becomes just 20 times more important because my time has become so limited and it's become so precious. And acting takes me away from my kids so much. And so when something that I am not deeply, deeply passionate and committed to, and I have to do it because it's like breathing, is taking me away from the things that are life, that are the only thing that matter, it becomes this real tug for me. Whereas when I tuck away into my office to write a story and I'm gone in that world for 10, 12 hours at a stretch, when I come out, I'm so full mm-hmm. and I'm so satisfied and I'm so Delighted. My, I'm I'm vibrating with joy. And that joy then pours into my children and pours into my husband. And I don't feel guilty about the time I took away from them. I feel good about it because I feel I'm coming back to them a better mom and a better wife. So it's still something I struggle with. It's still a tug of war for me because I'm the sole breadwinner in my family. I have a stay-at-home daddy who's an incredible father and I don't want that to change. I want him there for my sons. So I got to keep paying for the mortgage and you know putting a roof over our head and food on our table and acting as the most incredible day job I could have. I mean, it's, I'm so fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. But you know, the dream is one day, maybe I could make a living as a writer.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. It's funny. It's like the grass is always greener type I of thing, know. right? Like so many people say, "Well, I wish I could do that," and for you it's something you need to do. And I mean, and not I'm uh, not that you you don't enjoy it, but it's just you know, life works in such funny ways.
0: I know it's <laughs> so wrong. I always no, it is not lucky. wrong. I'm so lucky. No, no, no. That's how I, <laughs> I actually you're
2: not saying it's wrong, but I feel. I that actually way. wrote this essay once called "Like I'm Too Lucky to Cry on Easter," which I don't even celebrate. Yes. But like, I was in the bathroom crying, and I was like, "How could I be crying when I have such a nice bathroom? How can I cry <laughs> on this floor, Jamie?" You know I mean? Like, I feel like no matter what you have in life, like if you. Are lucky in any way? You feel bad complaining, yes. and, and but that's not true. You have what like it is what it is. It is what right, it is. and so you have it to is. like kind of go from there. Right? Thank
0: you, I appreciate so. that because you're absolutely right. At any time I say anything that sounds remotely like complaining publicly, I just think, oh my god, Evangeline, shut up! You are so obnoxious right now.
1: <laughs> Hiring for your small
0: business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: dot com slash moms don't have time I, I was even saying like this morning I was talking to my babysitter and I was like, maybe it's obnoxious of me to talk about how I have time to read when I have you here helping me right <sighs> and I'm telling all these moms to go read and maybe they don't have a babysitter oh it being God. able to help them maybe I'm being like totally presumptuous that like you know but not that my kids aren't. I mean, I'm usually reading in front of my kids. Like I'm with them. Yes. Like I feel like I don't know. I feel like we're like I'm very into like I'm there all the time. But anyway, enough about me. But well,
0: no. But uh, I, I think that I think that there's something to be said for. Having those thoughts, I think it, it shows that you're a conscious, healthy human being, that you're aware of your blessings, that you're aware of the difference between your life and other people's lives, or that you aren't just blindly going around thinking, woe is me. You know, I think it's healthy that we know and that we're aware that we're very lucky and that we have all these blessings. And then I think it's a kind of a beautiful challenge to work ourselves through those things and and do that thing of telling yourself, you're allowed to hurt too. Right. There's this beautiful song by an artist called Katie Herzig called I Hurt Too. And I just had this, this connection to it one day where I was thinking about my fans. And I have a pretty good, really, like I actually really know some of my fans and I've gotten to know them over social media or whatever else. And I really care about people a lot, even strangers and you know people I don't know. I, it means a lot to me if they're hurting. And recently I went through some really tough stuff And I was really hurting and I felt like I didn't know how to reach out and say, I hurt too, as a way of being connected, as a way of being humans together without it sounding like I was complaining. But I didn't want to reach out and say, I hurt too. So people go, oh, I'm so sorry you're hurting. I wanted to reach out and say, I hurt too, to say like, we're all in this together. We all hurt, you know, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, you hurt too.
2: We all have pain. Oh, that was beautiful. That's so nice. (laughs) Well, now I feel better about everything, so. Good, good. Are you able to talk about any of the stuff that was going on?
0: Well, I mean, it really pertains to the stuff that I was just talking about where I'm a really hyper-focused, really driven woman. I mean, when I was 16, my career goal was to be the youngest female CEO ever to walk the face of the planet. Like, that was my dream. I I don't even like business, but that, that was the ambition because... I had been given all my life, as I continue to be given, the worst possible advice you could give a female, which is you can have it all. Mm. And I really believed that. I was raised in the 1980s and I was female, and I was told, you are as strong as a man, as good as a man, you can do anything a man can do, you can have it all. But built into my DNA, I believe wholeheartedly that it's my job to save the world from all of its woes and all of its suffering and all of its pain. I believe it's my job that I'm solely responsible for the ultimate happiness of my children and my spouse. I believe that I have to be a good person on all fronts and do everything right in life. And then on top of that now, there's this added pressure that I'm supposed to have it all, which means I'm supposed to have the most incredible career or maybe five. And that I'm supposed to also run the NGO that I run and that I'm also supposed to be a social activist. And I'm also allowed to and can take all this onto my plate and do it all and kill it. And I got really, really sick this year in a way that that really unnerved me, in a way that I couldn't get better. And I didn't know why. And I couldn't get to the bottom of it. And I started to have to examine that, like, all these things I was killing it at were actually killing me and realize that I'm one human being. I have limited resources within my body and that they're being tugged in 700 different directions every day. And that will kill me if I do not put down boundaries and start to say, I can't, not I won't, I can't. I really can't, like I want to, but I can't. Or just to simply say, I don't want to. Why? Because what I really want to do right now is just lay down with my little kids and have them natter in my ear while I fall asleep. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm going to do. And it and it's so hard, I think, in, especially right now with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. There's so much rah-rah women, rah-rah femininity, which I love. But there's also this sort of built-in danger of us as the people who, I think, through our DNA, take on the world as our responsibility taking on too much. And I took on too much. I just took on way too much. And now I'm trying to figure out what do you get rid of? Like, it's so hard to know. What do you get rid of? Everything matters. Everything's important.
2: And the list just like goes on and on. On
0: and on. And it starts to hurt because everything you think about letting go of, you think of the people you're going to let down. And I can't, I, I have such a problem with letting people down. Like it really paralyzes me. It makes me really upset the idea that I'm letting anyone down, especially if that person's been good to me or have put faith in me or showed me respect. I can't let them down and I, but I have to and, and, and I what's happened in, the, in in the time that I've been working through all this stuff and, and really getting to the core of like what childhood issues really are causing me to need so badly to never disappoint anyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I have let a lot of balls drop. And this incredible thing has happened where those balls fall to the ground and I they think they're just going to shatter and they're just going to fall apart. And actually what happens is they're caught by all these people I've been nurturing, all these places I've put my love and my time and these things that I've given to and given to and given to and given to and never for a second thought about what I could get back. Suddenly I have these people who I thought I was carrying, carrying me and saying, you got to take care of you. I got this. I got you. And I'm so like, I just, I get so emotional. I get so blessed. And I'm like, oh my God, like even like young people, half my age who are, I mentor them. They're suddenly saying, I got you, you know, you're good. And like, it's okay. And like being the comfort for me. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is the fruit. This is the fruit of loving. This is the fruit of giving. And I wasn't looking for it, but here it is. And and all these people now are telling me, it's okay. Stop and take care of yourself. We love you. We love you no matter what you do. And it's been amazing. I'm not there yet. I'm not out of it yet. I'm still, you know, I'm getting there, but
2: it's going to be a beautiful 40th year of my life. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all that. Oh my gosh. I'm like crying myself. That was so great. That was, you're your beauty of i i you just it's like pouring from you that what you were saying before that you know how that your joy pours for you after pours through you after you're writing, it's like the common humanity. It's like it's mm. like all you're giving back. It's I don't know. I'm rambling. It was amazing. You're not. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank you. And it also makes me feel better just as another sort of person, another mom, another, like someone who's trying to do a lot of stuff, just to feel so understood suddenly by someone else and like exactly. given permission almost to... Like take it back a not. As much as we've got all these mummy bloggers and
0: we've got all this, you know, conversation online about this stuff. I notice in my life, and I don't know if you find this, there's a void of conversation, meaningful conversation really being had about this stuff between mothers face to face and like mm-hmm. this stuff is important. Cause I think a lot of us feel really alone. I, I mean you just you're so, so focused on those little people. That it's so you you don't have time to read, you don't have time to hang out with girlfriends. you don't have time to go on a date with your husband and even have that person just look at you and I go, "This is fucking hard, right? Like <laughs> yes, it's really hard like and we need it so much because it's such a lonely place, otherwise it's so
2: true. it's so true, I know sometimes. This night after, like, especially after the weekends, I don't know for you if either time, like, you just want to, like, collapse and be like, okay, we made it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're like, that was supposed to be the rest time? I got through a weekend. <laughs>
2: just back to prioritizing mm-hmm. and the times that you do just want to sit with your kids and whatever, how do you decide what to let go? Mm-hmm. And how do you decide what's worth keeping going? Obviously, things like your day job and the acting and things you have to do, but... Is there any metric? Like, I read all these parenting books on time management, and these are the things you should do. Right. And do you have a way? Well, two things come to mind. One of them is probably
0: less wise than the other because one comes from me and one comes from my incredibly zen partner who is always wiser than me. The one that comes from me, I recently read the first part of the book called The One Thing. It was a New York Times bestseller. And for someone like you and I, I highly advise you ignore all the rest of the book because it will just drive you into more doing. But the first part of the book talks about essentially the idea that multitasking is the greatest scam of all time, that it's a total lie. And that when you divide your attention, no matter how good you are at that, Everything that you're giving attention to is losing something. And so that really the key to being joyful in in success and having success, like real true success that isn't just on the surface, but that's really deep and profound in your life, is to focus on one, imp- the most important thing and the one thing at a time and never like sort of break that rule. So I've been trying to employ that right now as a baby step towards some of these big letting go moments where I just... Tell myself, okay, well, while I'm here doing this podcast, I refuse to you know, check my email or look on my phone or like be thinking about what I've got to do five minutes from now or ten minutes from now or two days from now. And when it finishes, instead of jumping onto some other task that needs to get done, I'm going to finish this one completely. So I will, I will post about it, and I will, I will completely resolve this thing and be in it and be in it so completely that I actually get filled from it instead of drained from it because I had an experience. I actually connected to another human being. I actually accomplished something that feels good to accomplish instead of feeling like how I felt for the better part of the last four or five years, which is like, I could have been more there or I could have been Done that better, or I I could have really you know put a little bit more effort into that other thing, but because I was always you know kind of divided, I wasn't giving anything my all, and I wasn't really getting satisfaction out of any of it. So that's my not-so-wise answer. This, like, practical, and I think, you know, a I lot of— I think that's wise. I thought that was great. Well, the better—I think, I think the wise— the, where I'm trying to get to, what I think hopefully that will bring me to, if I'm really just focused on one thing at a time and present with each thing at, at each moment, will get me to how my partner lives, which is that he honors himself in every moment, no matter what that means. So if he wakes up in the morning— And he's like, I, because he gets the kids to school and and does the, you know, stay-at-home mom routine. He wakes up in the morning and he's like, oh, I just can't make breakfast for the kids this morning. I just, I don't have it in me. He doesn't. He stops somewhere on the way and gets them some crappy breakfast that's not very good for them and sends them off to school with that and some lunch he bought at that same place and doesn't feel guilty about it and doesn't beat himself up about it. And because he didn't feel guilty about it and he didn't beat himself up about it, when he gets home, he'll probably crash and have the nap he actually needs because he's not riddled with guilt and trying to make up for the mistake he made this morning. And then he goes on with the rest of his day and and has probably a much better day. And the next morning wakes up refreshed and is like, okay, I can make breakfast this morning. I'm ready to go. And he lives so completely that way. And he is my kind of Buddha. He's my, he's like my example of what I want to get to. That even if he's dropping balls, he says, well, then that ball has to drop because I ain't doing it. I'm too tired. I ain't doing it. I'm I'm too cranky. I'm sorry that's not going to happen because that sounds really boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's like anything. And, and sometimes I, I shake my head and I go, come on, sometimes there's responsibilities and you have to. And he's like, yeah, my responsibility is I have to get that kid to school and I won't let that one drop. I know that. That's the do or die. You have to. But there is so much that you, my lovely wife, think is a do or die that is not a do or die. And that's what I'm trying to get to is like he knows that innately in his core and he just he just honors himself. He just trusts himself and he goes with it and then he doesn't look back. And I want to get there.
2: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> like nodding, you know? Yeah. So what's coming next? You're gonna release all the rest of these books eventually? How long is that gonna take? Do you have oh like my a God. schedule or <laughs> it's 20 books, so I know you it's know, a
0: while, right? Hopefully I'm still walking and upright and not in an old folks' home by the time I finish the last one. It takes a long time for the illustrator to finish the paintings. So I was inspired by Arthur Rackham as one of my biggest inspirations for directing the illustrators and creating this series. I wanted it to have that turn-of-the-century feel where you can see the pencil marks, you can see the watercolor marks, but what it means is it doesn't have that modern day crank-it-out digital efficiency. There's actual you know, pencil-to-paper and paint-to-paper and there's real things happening that take time. And so right now the plan is bang out the audiobooks as fast as I can. Write them, produce them, give them all my heart and all my time, make them as fun and zany and dark and, and wonderful as they can be. And so that kids have the stories and they're not left hanging. And then ideally two books a year, two hard copy books a year, maybe one and a half a year. I mean, maybe like two every three years. I don't know how quickly the illustrator can finish them. So we're still working on that. The Demise of Lorna the Lazy is half finished right now, which is the next one. And I'm only allowed to say that because the audiobooks come out. So that's not a spoiler. But usually we keep it a secret whose demise is coming next. And then we also have, I've been working on developing a, um, maybe a movie. I mean, we don't have any studio or funding or anything, but I do have Stop Animation partners who are incredible, who will remain unnamed until anything is real. But it's always been my dream to see the Squicker Wonkers come to life in a stop animation live action blend. So, in the book that you've read, I don't know if you have you read both.
2: Yeah, I had a different version, but yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, well, in the pre-show, there's a little girl who walks into a wagon full of vice-ridden marionette puppets, and I just imagine in the movie a real life little girl walking into a stop animation wagon with stop animation puppets, and how completely magical that would feel. It would be like a, a real kid gets to walk into like Tim Burton's world or something, you know? And, and I just think that would be really exciting.
2: Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that's the plan right now. Do you have any advice on finding time to read? When do you find time to read? Oof. Mm-hmm. I wish I found more time to read.
0: That has become one of my ways. So I'm I'm a compulsive doer, as many of us moms are. And learn to be because we became moms. And so one of my ways of not doing is to discipline myself to say, right now you should do nothing. And I'm like, I can't do that. I don't know how to do the nothing. I wish I could, but I can't. So, so in the last few months, I've disciplined myself to say, in the moments when I know the rule is I should do nothing, I read a book. Because then I'm doing something, I feel kind of productive. Unfortunately, that is something that I'm still very driven by. But it relaxes me and I, and I get to escape into a world with no responsibilities and, you know, someone else's problems and not my own. So for me, that has meant in my lifestyle, I have an unusual lifestyle as an actor. You know, I don't have a nine to five per se. That has meant in the afternoon when my little one naps, And the world goes quiet for one hour. My discipline is don't use that time to do the dishes or sweep the floor or catch up on some emails or any of that stuff. You sit down outside and you get yourself prone, not sitting up, you're not like in action mode, you're in repose mode and sort of lay lay down and read a book. And if you fall asleep, all the better. And when he wakes up, It's over and you go back to doing. And that has become, right now, because I'm not on a film set right now, that has become the routine. And it's been so healthy for me because that stopping in the middle of my day has prevented the latter half of my day from going off the rails with compulsive doing, 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 doing. Like, the amount of times I catch myself squeezing one, two, three little last things into the end of my day. And then by the time I sit down to dinner with my family, my brain is on overdrive and I am not there. I am in those five things I crammed into the end of my day. And that discipline of stopping midday to read, even if it's just for 20 minutes, has actually had this really wonderful domino effect on the rest of my day where I go about the rest of my day in a much clearer space and I have better boundaries and I'm more present and I don't push myself so hard. So that's become my thing right now. I love that. Yeah. I mean, even someone who does a nine-to-five, you could do that on your lunch break. Instead of talking with a girlfriend, which can still get your sort of energy up, reading brings your energy down, which feels like, oh, now it's hard to go back to work. But maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe your body's realizing how tired it really is. But if you get into that conversation and you feel kind of adrenalized, your body doesn't realize it's tired and it's exhausted. And that's how we get ourselves burned out and run
2: down. Well, thank you so much for yeah. being the inaugural guest on Kids Do Have Time to Read Books, and also on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Well, I have one more thing I have to say in regards to Kids Do Have Time oh, yes, to Read I Books. Yes, I forgot. I'm sorry. Yes, Go. this is
0: really this is really cool. So, uh, you asked me about the audiobooks, and you know, a big motivation for these audiobooks is I do feel that nowadays kids need so much more stimulation because they're so used to multisensory stimulation on video games and movies and YouTube and everything's every re- three seconds they have a new sound or a new visual. And I thought, you know, kids are probably not reading paper books the way we used to because they're going to the television or, you know, they're going to the video games. And I want kids to keep reading books. So I'm going to help maybe bring kids back to books by giving them this audio accompaniment. And I said that to the man who works, who's like the head of distributing at, at Ingram, where I'm, I'm distributing my books through. And this man used to work for the publishing house that published Harry Potter. And he was the guy responsible to distribute those books. And he actually uh, called me, called me out on my ignorance and said, actually, you're wrong, I have been amazed and delighted and pleasantly surprised in delivering the Harry Potter books to the world to realize how voracious kids still are with books. And the millions and millions of copies of those books that went out every year, again and again and again. And you'd think we're going to run out of kids who want to read books. And we just never seemed to run out of kids who wanted to read books. And every new generation that came up into that age bracket were just as voracious as the last one. And we never saw any indication that children's passion for reading was dropping off at all. And I felt so wonderfully r- wrist slapped in the way you want to be wrist slapped where you where I was like oh, that's so cool to know that kids are reading just as much as we were when we were kids there's nobody's reading is still stories are still fundamental to growing up and and they're they're forming kids and what we're doing is still really important that's excellent
2: yeah good news yeah <laughs> kids do
0: read kids <laughs> do, do read. have time to read we just don't <laughs> <laughs> so we think they don't yeah uh,
2: thank you so much It really it was such a pleasure it. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. MermaidPillowCo.com/slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome, giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens. And my new podcast, At Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Hold up.